0: Welcome back, everyone, to Wild Connection. You might have noticed we had a gap last week, and that's because we're now on a new schedule. For now, I'm switching to releasing a new episode every other Sunday. Today's episode is part of the special Women in Science series. You may have heard me talking about this on other episodes, and that's because I got a small grant from the American Geophysical Union's Sharing Science program, and this is to highlight some incredible women scientists. There are so many, so who knows when it'll end? For a few, there will also be separate videos posted soon on Wild Connection TV, my YouTube channel. I'll keep you posted on those when they're coming out. This week, it's all about what does it mean to get involved with science for the layperson or non-expert? What does it look like? Why is it important? And what are the contributions that people, ordinary people, are making to science? Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Verdolin but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jennifervertolin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Pod Bean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. I am happy to have my guest Dr. Karen Cooper on today. She's part of North Carolina State University's Leadership in Public Science program and the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Biology Program. She is passionate about the social side of science, getting people involved in a variety of ways and looking at what it means for a layperson to participate in science. She's also an ornithologist and outstanding mentor to the next generation of scientists. Before we start, I just want to let you know there were a few audio challenges in the beginning part of this episode. There was some construction going on during the interview, and I couldn't quite get rid of all the disturbance. So apologies for that. All right, here we go. All right, everybody, I'm really excited to uh, include Dr. Karen Cooper. She's part of our Women in Science series. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here today. You know, before we dive into your work and you you really work on a lot of different topics, I'm always wanting listeners to hear about how you ended up on this path and how you ended up in
1: science. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, my route to science. Uh, so part of my route is actually a story that I hear a lot, which is that, um, like, I really liked animals, I also and wildlife. But the um, so initially when I was young, like in middle school, um, to me that translated as oh, I should be a veterinarian. So I worked at vet clinics, you know, volunteered at them, worked at them. Um, I thought that was like the path that people took if they sort of had connection to nature and, and pets also and animals and whatnot. And then, uh, and then like people like Jane Goodall, like I read her books, like about wildlife biology and just some other like experiences like that made me realize, Oh, there's this whole, this whole possible careers in um, wildlife conservation and in science. And I guess I'll add to that. Like, um, well so my my family I was born on Long Island my parents were city people but when I was young we moved down to the south southeastern u s and lived in fairly rural places and so I really had spent a lot of time like exploring nature and the outdoors and it's funny to me now that like everyone seemed to associate that with oh Karen will be a scientist like there was always this assumption about oh you like the outdoors. And nature, that must mean that you'll be a scientist, which I often have pondered on since. Like, why do we make that assumption? And I guess it comes back around now that a lot of my focus is on citizen science and participatory sciences that, I don't know, maybe that would have been seen differently as like, oh, her interests are going to be fulfilled with this connection to science, whether it's her career or whether it's her hobbies or other interests. There's so many ways to be part of like those kinds of efforts. But at the time it meant like, oh, well, that's going to be her profession anyway. So, uh, so yeah, I guess it was, um, my, my interest in, in nature and the outdoors that drew me to scientific interests.
0: Yeah. That's well, it's so interesting because like you, I, loved animals uh, as as a kid and i again thought oh that means veterinarian you know <laughs> <laughs> and i i worked in a veterinarian uh, office and i i really don't i'm going to admit something now obviously quite publicly but yeah you know those fainting goats that just faint when they encounter? Oh, no. Oh, so there are these fainting goats that when they're startled, they just faint. Oh, so, okay. so that was me in the veterinary <laughs> office.
1: <laughs> well, I had a similar... So my cousin was a veterinarian and he, it, he invited me out to work with him one summer. And his main goal was to show me that I didn't want to be a veterinarian. Okay. Because he could see that I wasn't really like a people person and that's what it was about. And so he wanted to show me that. And so he actually took me on some of the hardest things, which was house calls to, um, for terminal patients, um, to put, put beloved pets down, you know, to end their life. And, uh, you know, and so I would always be holding off the vein and bawling like with the owner, like it was so hard, and it totally made me realize, okay, yeah, this is not actually what I'm looking for.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was my other experiences. I I'll never forget the golden retriever, and I was crying harder than the owners, yeah, yeah. and and the vet. That I worked for, good natured patient man said, Okay, first of all, you know, so it was the smells that got me, not blood, you know, I kept painting oh, yeah. smells. <laughs> and he said, This is not even like the worst thing you're going to encounter. Yeah. And then, of course, it's a bit tricky if you are the one bawling harder than the owner. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Yeah. So, so, but unlike you, I really didn't get the message that I could be a scientist, that there was scientists that studied wildlife behavior, but like you, it was through reading Jane Goodall's book and also Cry of the Kalahari by Mark and Delia Owens. Uh Uh Yeah. That book is the one that made me go, oh wait, there are people that can just go sit in a truck and look at lions. (laughs) and that's a job (laughs) I need this job and so you mentioned when you were younger that you explored nature a lot and and that that was how you connected is that still how you connect to nature
1: yeah I guess so I mean in my interests well yes in terms of my connection with nature and hiking and whatnot in terms of my science has changed over time and um I still study birds and have an interest in birds, but I also study, you know, in the social sciences and human behavior. And a lot of that was driven by also my interest in conservation and just understanding that, that really, you know, we don't change animal behavior. <laughs> like It's not how we're going to conserve species. Typically it's often about human behavior and, and just wanting to have a, uh, and just getting really curious about yeah, human behavior and how it relates to how we manage our natural resources on this planet.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, and we're going to talk a little bit more about human behavior and how we might be able to manage human behavior, <laughs> when especially when they insist on managing animal behavior uh, or other animal behavior, because, you yeah. know, we are animals, but I'm curious, you know, this is a series for women in science and it's to celebrate women in science. And you know, I know you do a lot of work on diversity and inclusion, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. And I'm curious, though, if you had any key mentors or role models that shaped your trajectory in the
1: sciences and through your career? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's so cliche for me to go back to like the Jane Goodall example, but like I read a lot of her books as a kid and they were all really influential, in particular one that was When I think it was the one about wild dogs that um, when she's raising her son in the field. And I think, I mean, I didn't know it at the time how much that would influence me. But when I was doing my PhD research in Australia uh, is when my husband and I decided to start a family. It was right before my last field season. And I was like, oh, Jane Goodall did it. You know, (laughs) obviously it's easy. No, I just thought at the time I thought, well, if I'm going to have a family and a career, I might might as well see how that works now anyway, it was super difficult. And I guess what's nice is to my advisor's credit, like he, he saw that difficulty coming and he, he arranged for like his most experienced field technician to come and, and help me in my last field season. And, um, which it really would not have been completed if she hadn't been there. Yeah. But like in terms of, and I guess there was just other readings and I don't know, yeah, I don't know if there's any in particular that I could call out. Well, I guess I could call out some of my colleagues, like in terms of my understanding of the participatory sciences and um, diversity, equity and inclusion, like a lot of that um, I've learned from my colleagues like Jacoby Wilson at University of Maryland and um, Chris Hahn, also at well, a different University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And uh, yeah, and just other, uh, other peers and colleagues. I mean, and, and a lot of my former students and current students, I don't know. There's so, you know, it's like a learning ecosystem, right? Yeah,
0: no. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I really love that that circle, right? What you just said now—that your students also teach you, and your students also mentor you, and you mentor your students—and that it's really a reciprocal relationship. I think, like you, you know, I would struggle to identify any any real key role model or mentor, except maybe Jane Goodall, because <laughs> I think you know there weren't a lot of women represented at that time, and all my all of my professors at undergrad were male, every single one of them. And they, some of them were great and they really inspired me and, and nurtured my curiosity and encouraged me. So nothing against, you know, being a male professor, but I didn't see myself reflected in the faculty and in my, my field. And then I met uh, Patty Reagan, who is the uh, director of the Center for Great Apes, who uh, ironically is tied to Jane Goodall, and and I volunteered there for eight years. And it wasn't that I wanted to run a sanctuary, you know, suddenly, but it was to see a a, a powerful woman, you know, creating a life and a dream that she had envisioned uh, with a passion and a mission to conserve and, and protect, um, former pet and Hollywood, you know, apes Mm -hmm. essentially. And so, uh, I, you know, I, I, it's interesting that, that we sort of have such a, you know, hard time kind of picking who, who really shaped us and, and that now you're getting that interaction with your students, um, you brought up diversity and inclusion and participatory science, and you do a lot of work in this space. And while I do want to talk about how they intersect, can you give us a little bit of background on what, you know, citizen science or participatory science, I know where there's a you know conversation happening about what we call it, but can you give us a little background on what, what does it mean?
1: Sure. Yeah. So when I'm referring to the participatory sciences, I mean like a whole vast array of different ways that people who are not necessarily professional scientists are collaborating um, often with scientists in making new knowledge, knowledge that is like valid and accepted and, you know, authoritative. And, and it can it is really not one way that it looks. It can be very grassroots which is typically like a community science uh, sort of um, design. It can be very uh, even top down and geographically distributed, which is typically how a citizen science science kind of approach looks. It can be people engaged like in a seemingly superficial way of like, oh, they've taken a picture and submitted it to a website. They might not even know like what type of flower it is, but they're submitting it and someone else is going to tell what it is to engagement that's really, really substantial of like identifying an important question in a community that really needs to be addressed with hard, good, um, rigorous evidence. So it can really, really vary. And and that's what I'm calling sort of these participatory sciences. And then there is like a lot of different jargon and terms that vary with so many different fields because it's happening in in public health, in ecology, in conservation, in biochemistry, in astronomy, in microbiology, it, like just like almost every field we look in has some elements that are participatory and sort of some favored types of approaches that that field tends to take that to suit suit well to that field.
0: And has that when did that sort of start or become more common uh, to have participatory science as part of what we might think of as traditional science?
1: I think, well, I mean, there's a few ways to answer that, I guess. Um, I mean, there's always been other, other ways of knowing and discovery that's not been sort of our Eurocentric model of, of science that we have here. That's sort of, I guess, the dominant paradigm now, you know, like like indigenous knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge and things like that, you know, and it took centuries for what we current, our current model of science to really emerge as a profession and even then, it's morphed, you know, many times in sort of what it looks like and being government funded and separate industry funded, like all the different the way we have it now and with our current peer review system, like the whole institution of science is still changing. And the way it looks now is relatively new. And I think that these different participatory sciences have existed alongside it. Like it's almost like the antithesis, like as the profession emerged The sort of amateur or non-professional versions have always persisted, but in these different forms. But I think in the U.S., with the environmental movement and the environmental justice movement, those have have cultivated um, like community science and citizen science approaches in particular. And then with the web technologies has cultivated a lot of new types of um, online sort of participatory science approaches and crowdsourcing. there's been a lot of, a lot of iterations over time. Right. Well,
0: and I, I tend to think of like sort of the, you know, historical naturalist also as, you know, someone who might've been a philosopher and a writer and a lawyer or and a politician, and then studied butterflies. Right. right. And, and then of course uh, I've always thought of science as a way of knowing and that there are many ways of knowing. And, you know, I'm wondering in the, in its more sort of contemporary, iteration. Can you talk about one or two specific projects that you think have really benefited from data
1: collected in this participatory way? Oh, I mean, sure. There's a lot of examples. I mean, there's some like big classic, I guess you could say ones, um, are, uh, so like monarch butterflies and, and the knowledge that they migrate in the, in the U S like in Canada from from Canada and the northern U.S., midwestern U.S., 4,000 miles to Mexico, right? This little insect. That knowledge comes from these kinds of citizen science efforts. They weren't called that like term at the time. Um, but it was teachers and their students who were part of these coordinated efforts to tag, to capture, tag, and release monarchs in the US and then for others to be searching for them in other places, right? And they were finally found in, in Mexico. So that was like, that's an iconic example. A lot, uh, well, we've documented that half of what we know about migratory birds and climate change, their response to climate change, half of that comes from citizen science efforts of volunteers who are monitoring nests, creating checklists, banding birds even over, over decades. There's
0: well, and I, I guess a follow-up a follow up question is, has your research benefited by a discovery or an advancement that was the direct result of someone who was participating in this way in your research?
1: I mentioned that when I was getting my PhD um, is when we decided to start a family. And up until that point, I had been all about wanting to become a field biologist and doing everything in the field. And... But then after I started a family, I actually looked for alternatives because I thought, okay, maybe I need to take a break from field work. And that is what led me back to citizen science. And so after I got my PhD, I spent over a decade at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And for a lot of that time, my main focus was leveraging these data sets that were from bird watchers across the country who had been sharing their observations. And so, yeah, so my work, my research research that I led then that, that involved those volunteers. A lot of it was related to bluebirds. I liked working with the bluebird enthusiasts. They monitor nests um, of bluebirds. They nest in, in, they take really readily to birdhouses. And so um, anyway, people monitor them, report how many eggs and the timing and all of that. And, um, and I was using that to look at questions related, um, sort of big ecology and evolution questions related to, uh, like latitudinal trends in clutch size, these like large scale patterns and trends in hatching success and uh, things like that.
0: Yeah, so so what did these Bluebirders and all their data reveal?
1: <laughs> so, um, well, so one thing I'll emphasize about, about what it, they revealed was, were these large scale patterns in clutch size and hatching success um, and timing of breeding. And, and so what I, what I want to note there is that each individual observation, like observations from each person by themselves, wouldn't, don't tell as much of a story as all of those observations collectively. Cause then it, it's revealing this pattern across like a really large latitudinal gradient right across the country, the range of the Eastern bluebirds from Florida, you know, up to Maine or whatever, or up to Wisconsin. And um, anyway, and so those are the kinds of patterns that were, that I was able to reveal from, from their collective efforts. And so, yeah, we saw a uh, seasonal, basically there's a larger as expected, larger clutch sizes in the North than in the South. And um, actually a, uh, more hatching failures um, at lower latitudes and also in the summer, yeah, and we're we're actually still exploring a lot of those patterns and what drives them in terms of like local weather variables and how they relate to climate trends and things like that. that's wonderful, and yeah, you know, I'm curious, you know why do you think people
0: are interested in participating in science in this way?
1: Well, so it really varies like in terms of what. What motivates people? I think for bird watchers, it's their hobby. Like it's their pastime and it's their passion, right? They love like with bluebirders. I mean, they love bluebirds and and they love sharing what they see and know about bluebirds, and they especially love sharing that information if they know it's also going to potentially help bluebirds or provide some collective knowledge that could be useful in return. So I think it can really vary. I think there's other projects, you know where people, the motivations, could be also towards environmental protection or towards like very specific, like, um, you know, ways to address sort of environmental disparities, like health disparities, environmental risks. It can really vary. Others, it might be like often like a gateway into like professional development, you know, and those kinds of things. Like, so I think it's a wide range of reasons um, why people participate.
0: Do you think that when people do contribute to research in this way, that they develop a stronger connection to a place or a species and are more invested in their community or in conservation?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's one that the field of citizen science has been really interested in. It's it's one that's tricky to study too, because there is like a self-selection factor of that people who are already motivated and connected to nature, like being more likely to engage in these projects. And and it might even be a way that they express their connection to nature and their interest in conservation is through their contributions to these projects. Yeah. So I think it's still a little bit of an open question as to, yeah, as to how how people might be transformed and enriched through their citizen science experiences. And I, I think it's an active area of research. And it really varies with so many different circumstances, but it is, but this, this idea of, of how, how people might be instruments of science in this way and how science can be an instrument for people. And like that balance, I think is one that's really central to the study of citizen science.
0: I'm I'm curious too, um, you know, citizen science, and you've written about this, and and I'm going to put a link to the paper in in the show notes. You know, citizen science sounds really inclusive, and it sounds really welcoming. Um, and and I guess some people have argued, well, as long as you're a citizen, and what do we mean by citizen? But you know, how inclusive and diverse is the participation? Is participatory science?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's a really good question because because you're right. The the whole notion behind what's currently most frequently called citizen science is is this idea that oh there's no barriers because you don't have to be a scientist like it's supposed to be inclusive because it's taking away this big obstacle of having a credential of being a scientist um but yeah when we look at participation in what i'll say are these uh top-down projects that are designed like sort of by institutions that are very very much um Aligned with mainstream science agendas, when we look at those projects and who's participating in them, they're really not reaching very far in terms of engaging diverse members of the pub, segments of the public. They're primarily engaging people who are white and affluent and really highly educated, like not just college degrees, but like sometimes like advanced degrees. There's a lot of of uh, It raises a lot of questions like about the barriers and about the design of of these projects um, and why they're not more uh, inclusive. And when we look at other areas of the participatory sciences, we see we see participation that that is really diverse racially and economically and educationally. And, And that's particularly in sort of the grassroots projects, the community, authentic community science projects. And those research agendas are often are, are raised by the community. And it's because they're not, they're, they're underserved by science. There's um, the mainstream science agendas are really not serving all segments of society. And so um, I think that that's, seems like that could be one of the reasons why citizen these top-down projects are not really engaging or relevant to, um, I guess just different diverse communities. And,
0: and to follow up on that, you know, I'm, I'm curious, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, top down to me sometimes, uh, and, and maybe I'm, I'm, uh, pigeonholing the word top down to academic sort of agendas, um, you know, research, you know, academic institution based scientists, Mm-hmm. In my experience, at least in the field of ecology, conservation, wildlife biology, it's not the most diverse represented at the at the faculty level, either at the researcher level. And so is there you know, do you think that it's an issue also that's being reflected in the recruitment strategies, or is it that the nature of some of these projects, by definition, excludes people. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of one example. I know, uh, you know, if, if we're doing a, let's say, a, a big cat survey, you know, uh, in, in remote areas in southern Arizona, then you know, and you want to rely on citizen scientists to go check wildlife camera traps. Those people need vehicles. They, right. you know, also need lots of time and. And so how accessible, so how much is it not reflecting the diversity that's in the institution or other barriers that, that what are some of the other barriers that people have to participating?
1: Yeah, it's all of the above because it's, it's, yeah, <laughs> um, lots of things. And, and I think that um, when we think about citizen science and these top-down projects, a lot of times it's framed um, it is like vol it's a it's a type of volunteering. People are volunteering their time in service to whatever that scientific agenda is. And volunteering is a highly privileged thing to be able to do. And so, um, and so I think uh, so in many for many reasons that's that alone is like I think a big part of um of the barriers. Um as opposed to if it was um if it was w- doing whatever work it wouldn't even re- necessarily be called volunteering but that was in service to to things that were relevant to one's own community whether it's community of place community of interest whatever it is what do you think are some of the strategies you see as important to
0: making participatory or participation in science by non-experts more inclusive
1: yeah that's a good question um and so well at the moment i ha- uh, um I think there's a lot of relevant um, like scholarship and work that has been done that we can draw on in a lot of different fields related to diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, all those kinds of things. And, um, and a lot we can learn from these sort of grassroots community science and, and whatnot. And we can draw on those principles um, that are very inclusive. And, and I actually have um, a working group right now that's in the process of forming um, where we're going to be addressing these issues over the next year and trying to come up with guidance of potentially inclusive practices. And it will be like a, you know, instead of a silver bullet, it'll be a shotgun approach. There'll be a lot of, a lot of different things. Um, But I think it includes uh, like reordering research priorities, like we were talking about, like, well, you know, taking a, a closer look at, at a research agenda and how much it matches um, and serves sort of a mainstream of society or how could it be altered or changed um, to serve different segments of society better. We could reimagine and decolonize project narratives, sort of how they're framed. And yeah, to highlight sort of experiences and perspectives of non-dominant cultures. Um, We could look at at, at even designing our citizen science projects as tools so that they, that they're not only ways that, you know, that if people use those tools, the data are available for those dominant culture purposes, but they're also tools for the people who are using them to use for their own purposes. And they, where science becomes an instrument for people. Um, and then I think, I think there's a lot to look at in terms of sort of, sensitivities to issues of power inequities, terminology, like like is there's this active discussion about the term citizen science. and just just other ways that of avoiding being extractive or exploitative in, yeah, in these participatory practices, like I said, because this sort of volunteer paradigm is a very privileged kind of um, uh, perspective yeah, uh, so anyway, yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of work to be done. It sounds like it. and And a couple of things that jumped out to me were,
0: you know, when you said maybe reframing the, the research agenda, the first thing that leapt out at me was, yeah, but then the funding that funds research, that research agenda, right, has to align because uh, I think some people might be constrained with whatever a funding agency is willing to fund. And and so hopefully we can see a shift in the money allocation also to support right. those kinds of of projects and i really am thinking about you know what you said where that science becomes a tool for the people who are actually contributing to it so non experts the the ones that are participating and am you know wondering you know what would that what could that look like or why why does the participation of of non experts matter right? what is the benefit that societally even and scientifically for having people participate in this way and having I mean, their data available to them too
1: yeah right and so i tr- think the trick is making it a win win so it's it's useful for all all people involved um, I think I think these top-down approaches of like of like aggregating observations from people at large scales over long time periods, people seeing rare events, people, you know, even contributing from areas that are otherwise inaccessible, which I don't mean remote wilderness, I mean just like backyards, mm-hmm. <laughs> like private homes, or whatnot. Um, all of those things have shown. Um, I think are now demonstrated to contribute to um, discoveries that wouldn't be possible by just a single scientist or even a a bunch of scientists collaborating. Like um, there's, there's so many things that we don't know um, and many of those things we'll never discover on our own. If we, if it's not a collaboration with the public, I mean, that's just that, that's just how it is. And, and in terms of, of designing those in ways that are useful Um, for people where they live. Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, like, like there's, there's more effort I think now being made toward creating, say um, using low cost sensors to monitor air pollution and creating the infrastructure and the capacity for people to monitor air pollution where they live. By contributing those data to these bigger networks, there can be a lot more modeling and, you know, configuring and like, bigger scale understanding about like drivers of air, but then all, and to be able to use that, like for whatever local, if they're, you know, trying to close a power plant or like something that's emitting the pollution or like for whatever purposes that might help them locally, uh, I think is like the kind of win-win that that we yeah. need to be designing for.
0: I remember reading a study that was looking at temperature in houses and, and it also tied it to wildlife, right? That, but that, um, you know, monitoring the temperature, the ambient temperature inside and outside of homes where we were expecting, you know, climate change and, and, t- and linking that data. But that data is also then useful for helping to figure out what homes need to be insulated better and maybe providing uh, better insulation um, and education on how to do that at a low cost. Um, I think that was a couple of years ago. And so that's sort okay. of one of those, right? That kind of pulls yeah. everything in together. I think it's curious. Uh, I, well, I guess I'm wondering, you know, what do you think is the state of things sort of generally when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the sciences? Are we <laughs> making progress? <laughs> Are we making
1: progress? There's certainly... We're certainly in a moment right now where there's an expression, a a lot of expression of interest in making change. And I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that change is happening. I don't know if it's, if it's how, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like my department and my college is making a lot of really good efforts. So it's hard for me to know what's going on beyond that in academia, it's institutional change is really difficult can be is just difficult and slow i think sometimes too slow yeah i don't know I, like i feel like um when i look back on my career um and like we were talking about earlier like there like most of my professors were men um and when i was in graduate school i did a masters which and it was predominantly men and like us few women, we all were like our own little cohort <laughs> together. Um, the few of us that were in that program. And then with my PhD, um, actually the lab was mostly women. And it was like that critical mass was really important. But And it was really part of this wave of, um, of women really flooding into the natural sciences and wildlife and whatnot. And when I look at that, Like in some ways I'm modeling my lab after that, but related to race um, and having a critical mass of um, people of color. Um, Just because from my own experiences and from reading and, you know, talking with others that that makes such a big difference for a cultural shift. And so uh, anyway, so I'm seeing that in in my lab, in my department and in my college. Um,
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. I, you know, I can say I'm seeing that also
0: in my university and in my department and in my college. And uh, I think it's, it's so true that, you know, like you in my masters, like most of the faculty were men. uh, There was a few females. And then there was a big shift when I hit my PhD, Mm -hmm. Um, there was still majority of faculty were male. But there were like overwhelmingly more female graduate students in my cohort than men. And and so but a lack of people of color still. And (laughs) so I'm seeing that change um, a little bit more in these recent years as well. So. I want to shift topics now because I was reading a few of the papers that have come out of your lab between you and your students, um, and, you know, noise pollution and temperature and how it's affecting birds and, and also how humans might perceive noise as not being a problem while for birds, noise is becoming a huge problem. But I want to talk specifically about House sparrows. You know, I could I could be wrong, but they seem to have a lot of drama. Do they have drama?
1: (laughs) Yeah, they definitely do. (laughs) Can Can we talk about the kind of drama that that house sparrows have? Sure. Well, so I mean, house sparrows are like the most common bird in the world. And um, and they're commensal with humans. And so, um, yeah, very close ties with people. And and have spread across the world with people. <laughs> um, in the U.S. among bird watchers and bird enthusiasts, there's, there's, a, there's a big dislike oftentimes that's taught, a, a dislike of, of, of birds that are not native to the U.S. and um, so that are invasive or potentially damaging to like other maybe competing with other species that are native and so um anyway so how sparrows fit that category and they've been seen as a pest like as an agricultural pest in the past and then among bluebirders who i've worked with quite a bit um they're seen as a nest competitor um and and a uh, uh to bluebirds and so yeah a lot of bluebird enthusiasts really, really don't like house sparrows. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you were talking about how much the bluebirders love their bluebirds. So I imagine anything, anything that were to, um, you know, create obstacles for their beloved bluebirds might be uh, the target of their, you know, angst. And so, but it's really fascinating, right? Because when we think about, you know, birders and bird lovers, you know, I've come across this topic before. I interviewed um, Dr. J. Drew Lanham not too long ago, and we were discussing, you know, how bird lovers, you know, hate some species of birds mm-hmm. for their kind of bad behavior, and of course, from my perspective, they're not behaving badly. They're just better at <laughs> I mean, they're out, so I'll qualify that. <laughs> not like they're better birds, but they're better at competing, you know, rather successfully. And and you know, I know from some of the papers I've read on on house bears, like females in particular are really fierce when it comes to mm-hmm. getting a nest, kicking other birds out of a nest. You know, they I mean ruffle they they you know feathers fly basically yeah. Yeah. um for this and so um you know how do you navigate that kind of attitude or perspective when we're thinking about participatory science <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> yeah interesting um i mean so far we've just been sort of trying to understand uh like attitudes towards how sparrows i mean and so from a bluebirders perspective, they're putting all this effort into um, providing homes for bluebirds to nest and raise their young. And, you know, if they find that a a house sparrow literally can kill a bluebird in its box, you know, and and to find that bluebird um, killed by a house sparrow, like, yeah, I mean, it evokes a lot of emotion. Like, there's just no doubt. To bring to that, like, conversations about management and management strategies, and like what, how to test those, and what can be effective, as opposed to just doing things that maybe satisfy a vengeful emotion but are really not effective. Um, yeah, is the kind of conversations that that we like to have with bluebirders, um, <laughs> and and then to try to carry out studies collaboratively to figure out like what does work best. That's what Sparrow Swap was um, working towards. And yeah, I mean, and it's fascinating to me because, um, yeah, because like I said, a lot of that, like, yes, you were right when you said the bluebirds probably don't like any birds that disrupt the bluebirders don't like any birds that disrupt bluebird breeding. And that's true. They don't like house rents, for example, but house rents are protected, right? right? House sparrows are not protected by law in the U S and so, um, yeah, in that sense, they're more vulnerable to whatever people's whims are, but, but it's just ironic to me because they're only as invasive as we are because they come with us. So, um, so yeah, it's a funny kind of situation there.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because I saw a post on Facebook recently where, you know, it was a bird, bird lovers, bird enthusiasts who may not be bluebirders but like to put seeds and things for birds in their backyards seem to also have this, you know, um, Vengeful. I like that. Vengeful attitude towards squirrels.
1: Oh, sure. Right. And,
0: and, you know, the idea that you can just put food out and then decide who gets to eat it and who doesn't. And that the squirrel is bad and the bird is good. And unfortunately, this person posted that they put out sticky traps to try to catch the squirrel and killed two migratory birds. instead. Right. And they were devastated that they killed the birds instead of the squirrel. I felt compelled to comment (laughs) gently. Right. That, you know, if you're going to put food out, you really don't get to decide who eats it. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like, you know, the squirrel didn't do anything wrong. The squirrel is just really smart and can navigate most of our obstacles uh, better than some humans can and solve puzzles better than some humans can to access a high density, you know, easy fast food, like Burger King snack. Mm -hmm. And, (laughs) you know, and so, so it's, but, but there are, like you said, strong emotions are evoked and it's very tricky to Mm -hmm. navigate those and at the end of the day, I think, like you said, you know, this, this house bear is only as invasive as we are, you know, if we're going to survive climate change, so are they. And most right. of the species that we currently might think are the least revered are the ones that are going to make it through. <laughs> right. They're the most
1: resilient. Yeah. They well, are. And I think, I think this also speaks to like the potential for these participatory sciences to help with like basically with management in residential settings, which there's no one really governing that at the moment, right? But we see it with like fisheries, like community-based fisheries and like other natural resources that people share and that they work together in collecting information, monitoring, and also having discussions about values and priorities and like figuring out how to manage natural resources together. And I think there's tremendous potential for that also in our, where we live, in our residential like settings, except there's no, it hasn't really risen to that level right now. It's like, everyone does whatever they want in their yard, which is fine. But like, we could coordinate and like actually go through a lot of these same processes of like, okay, well, actually we're all have land and we all live on this land and we want to manage it collectively. Citizen science and these participatory sciences could actually be a door to that.
0: Oh, yeah. And I think it'd be great if part of that push was to abolish um, HOAs that required monoculture grass lawns. I've not, I've been not a fan of those forever. <laughs> and instead, right, community management, like you put a pollinator garden in, I'll get the, you know, uh, coordinate the landscape to actually provide habitat for and support, you know, diversity of wildlife. That would be Fabulous. Which would also probably clean up the air locally and, you know, uh, all kinds of other amazing things could happen. Less fertilizer in the water, um, just by getting rid of grass lawns. That's my pitch. Um, (laughs) What is, what's happening next for you and your lab? Where are things going?
1: A lot of my work is related to um, what I call the citizen science campus, which is, has a lot of different dimensions to it, but it's, about improving undergraduate education by um, offering citizen science opportunities in courses, um, undergraduate research experiences in which students can be ambassadors for citizen science projects. They can can develop their science skills and identity by working with different groups and helping them do citizen science. Those kinds of things, I guess, working in creating um, different Uh, tutorials and trainings um, for people who were helping facilitate citizen science with different groups. Um, I have a collaboration with the um, North Carolina Council of Churches that I'm really excited about in which we're working to offer citizen science uh, experiences to faith communities um, and really helping helping see uh, sort of faith mindsets and science mindsets as compatible and how people can negotiate those identities. Um, looking, uh, what other stuff? Oh, and then I have I have ornithology research happening. I have grad students, one who's studying red cockaded woodpeckers, it's a federally endangered species and um, their response to climate change. And another who's studying barn swallows and their responses, uh, how they uh, respond to um, artificial light at night, trying to understand those processes. So both like in ornithology and in sort of this realm of citizen science. Um, Yeah, you
0: have a lot going on. And and you know what? I'm really excited, listeners. We're going to hopefully get a sneak peek on some of these things in our um, YouTube video with Dr. Karen uh, Cooper. So thank you so much for, um, for being here and for talking with me.
1: Well, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: I want to echo what Dr. Cooper mentioned about how collaborative science and including non-experts in science can lead to major discoveries and even policy changes. Recently, hundreds of thousands of crowd-sourced field observations have helped scientists at Duke University get a handle on the locations and more importantly, the habitat of over a thousand bird species in Central and South America. And these are birds that are on the brink. The lead scientist, Dr. Huang, noticed, much like my guest, that observations from your average bird watcher has led to scientists realizing birds were living in places that scientists thought were a no-go. This is a game changer when it comes to conservation because if you don't know where the species is and where it can live, you don't know how to target your efforts and what habitat to protect. I think where we need some work is addressing the gaps in using research as a tool to help communities engage in problem solving relevant to them, to participate in conservation in a meaningful way and to remove the obstacles and barriers that make activities like birding or volunteering for only the affluent and privileged in our society. All right, that's the show. And like I mentioned at the top, we are going to try an every other week approach moving forward. Thanks for listening and check out the show notes for links to some of the work covered on the show and for ways to get in touch and stay in touch with Dr. Cooper. Till next time.